Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulitala. So today, my guest is a journalist and writer called Anna Santi. Anna had various roles as a journalist, first at Draper's, a renowned UK fashion trade magazine. And later on, she went in-house in a brand called Jigsaw, which, if you live in the UK, you may be familiar with, where she became their first editor-in-chief. There, she launched an in-house magazine, and she even published a book called Comfort Zones, a collection of original stories by 28 women writers, including Pandora Sykes, Emma Gannon, for the charity Women for Women International. Her new book, Three Things to Help Heal the Planet, was published earlier this year, and I was very keen to talk about it with Anna, as you all probably notice. I really wanted to have a conversation around some of the very important topics that she covers across the 21 essays that make up the book. So in this interview, we talk, of course, about Anna's journey from her native Brazil to the UK first, what brought her to journalism. We also talk about how and why working as a fashion reporter became a launching pad towards this book to talk about sustainability and individual action. Of course, we get into the essays, the mission of the book. And among many other things, we talk about why we should learn to be a better ancestor. I hope that this intrigues you. I am very excited to be bringing you this interview. So let's get into it. Happy listening. Anna, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh, I'm so happy that we're seeing each other today. So as you already know, the podcast is at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. So what I normally like to start by asking my guests to share and tell their stories quite freely instead of starting with a deep dive. So I find that it's really interesting to understand more about who we are and what motivates us before we get into the work and what we do. So I'd like to invite you to tell us who you are and and where you're from. Okay, thank you. So I feel like I should start here. I was born in Brazil and I grew up there until I was about eight and a half in a town called Santos, which is in Sao Paulo, in the state of Sao Paulo. And I had a lovely childhood. And then when I was eight and a half, we moved to Bristol City in England. And from then on, that's where I grew up until I went to university just outside London, where I studied French. And I think, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I wonder whether um, I developed sort of love for language and linguistics by arriving in a country completely unable to speak the language. You know, I remember going to primary school, my mum had to sit next to me when I first went, which I just don't think would happen today. I don't know. Oh my God, that's so sweet. I know she just sat next to me and would translate workbooks because I I could do the work. If I had like a maths textbook, I I could do the maths, but I 
could, well, some of it anyway, um, but I couldn't understand the questions, like the problems being asked, for example. So yes, she almost became a bit of a teaching assistant because then all the other children were like, oh, can you help me with this? And can you help me with that? Oh my and my mum is a teacher. So. Oh, okay. That, that, that's even yeah, better. So I think the primary school were actually really quite chuffed that that happened. They were like, oh, okay. An additional teaching assistant. So, yeah, I wonder whether my love for language and, and yeah, linguistics perhaps came from that. You know, I also then remember in secondary school when we started learning French and I couldn't speak French. You know, I started at the same place as everybody else did, but I would know the meaning of words. You know, that our French teacher say, right, does anyone know what that means? Oh. And I was, ah, oh, that sounds, I remember la mode. Mm-hmm. And I thought that sounds like moda. In Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So I, I would make those connections. Can I add something to that? You know, I found years ago, the first time I went to visit Brazil, I was in Sao Paulo for work. And there was a whole bunch of actually of fashion magazines because I worked in fashion. And I realized with surprise how close written Portuguese is to French. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I could understand roughly yeah. 50% of what was on the page. Yeah. Could it's- not understand a word of what anyone said to me when they were speaking, though. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. When, and, and you're given a bit of time, aren't you? And it's written down rather yeah. than someone talking at you. you. You can sort of, yeah, read it and, and take your time. Remember that. So, yeah, I, I studied French at university, uh, language and literature, which I loved. I, oh, I wish I could go back to university and just do it all over again. I love it. Love learning. I've been a bit of a geek. Maybe. Oh, I feel you. <laughs> I just stole those books and like those reading weeks, like you'd actually get given time to just read. And like, and at the time, I don't know whether I actually appreciated that enough, but my gosh, if I was given like a reading week now, that would be so lovely. Um, Yes. And then after university, I moved to London because my university was just outside London anyway. And I started in PR, even though I actually wanted to be a journalist. I was getting some advice after my university degree and everyone said to me, well, if you want to be a journalist, you should really do a journalism course. And I thought, gosh, I, you know, I've been in education. I was 22 because doing French, I spent a year abroad in France teaching. So I thought, oh, I don't want to do more courses, more learning. I want to sort of get out there and, you know, and start working. So I went into PR. I did that for two and a half years. And then I did do a journalism course <laughs> and um, then I became a journalist, which I still am. You know, I, that's been my career for 15 years. It's just that it has broadened out a lot more now. I freelance. So I'm not a, I'm not employed. Like I, I used to be, I don't write for one publication. I, I freelance and now I write and I've written for and continue to write for brands. So it's a much broader um, piece and I continue to live in London. I don't know if that's, um, I don't know if I told it freely. I don't know. I just think, you know, when you get asked to tell your story, we do, I don't know if you find this through, you know, all the people that you interview, whether we do seem to default to our jobs. And I really didn't want I to know. do that. And I, I hope <laughs> I haven't done that too much. But Not I, too much. Well, the first, the fact that you shared how much you loved reading, for example, and your love of language, mm-hmm. I think is something really interesting to note. But before we go any further, I want to mm-hmm. already leave some of my questions and go back to your upbringing in 
in Brazil mm-hmm. because I was reading last night a passage from your book, The Introduction mm-hmm. to Where. And oh, yeah. I absolutely loved the fact that mm. you started the chapter by saying my Barbie was always the best dressed. She Can was. you please tell us that story and tell us about your grandmother? Yeah, she, oh my gosh, my Barbie looked amazing. My, my I'm sorry, grandmother. I'm going to request pictures because I want to see what she looked <laughs> oh like. Oh my gosh, I wonder, <laughs> oh my gosh, do I have some? Now you've made me want to try and uncover these photos I bet we have them somewhere yes my grandmother was a seamstress so she had this a converted garage in her house in Brazil and she made bespoke dresses but she did wedding dresses guest wedding dresses but they were beautiful and they were all done by hand like these dresses were heavy and she would from you know the scraps of of these incredibly sort of beautiful and intricate and well-made dresses, she would make dresses for my Barbie and for my sister's Barbie. Oh, I remember them all so well. There was this emerald green dress with these sort of beautiful sequins. There was the this white one. I think it was sort of a jacardy kind of fabric, but it had a, a sweetheart neckline and then a really full skirt that wow. you know we would spin our barbies around um when they were dancing so yes yeah, you were just and, and they fit the barbie so perfectly you know it i think i might have said when i was writing i'm, I'm not sure that i wouldn't be surprised if she sort of cut them from a pattern or mm. she was just you know so super clever she could just make these fit so perfectly and sister and i would have all these like uh, parties and with for our Barbies and they would just arrive with these amazing <laughs> dresses and I just felt so lucky they were bespoke you know no one else had them <laughs> that's amazing and then you explained that every year your grandmother whose name was Irene uh, Irene yeah Irene in yeah Irene in Portuguese but Irene, Irene. yeah mm. that she would treat herself to one new skirt every yeah. year and she would yeah. like do a catwalk and everything. Yeah, it was so cool. So my grandparents, for most of the time that, that we lived in Brazil, and they had this marble staircase that went from the living room upstairs, which sounds like really fancy, but you know, you didn't have carpet in Brazil. It's too hot. Like yeah. it, so, you know, it was sort of a necessity, but it was really, you know, really lovely. And yeah, she would treat herself to a new skirt every year and she would get dressed for it. So my granddad, you know, really funny like loves a bit of drama and theater so we would be waiting at the bottom of the stairs and he would announce her and then you know she would really play up to it as well she Mm. she was good and she would walk down slowly treating it as a catwalk and I I cannot see a can of Elnet hairspray and not think of her you know she just (laughs) had like her hair all made up her red lipstick she would work it you know she would walk walk down the staircase really really working it and yeah and it would just be every year she'd treat herself and it was always a skirt it was never anything else mm. I mean she wore other things but skirts were her trademark mm. yeah. what a gorgeous story <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah she was lovely you're making me think of my great-grandmother who when you see Alnet mm. that's who I think of yeah because she had what I like to call the helmet of all the right. ladies, you know, when uh-huh. no hair ever comes out of place because it's, I know, so much it's incredible, hair. isn't it? 
And I think the reason why I'm thinking of her is because the one thing I have from her is one unbelievably beautiful black tie, black silk skirt. Oh, wow. Oh, that's, that's the only so... thing I have from her. Oh, no, that and a really amazing cocktail ring. <laughs> <laughs> My grand liked rings too, actually. <laughs> so, I, yeah, the last couple of years have not really... Um, help me figure out where I could wear that skirt but you know Mm, just hoping one day you will one day I just think you will never (laughs) never ever replace it never never give it away oh no oh no 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 (laughs) so one of the things I wanted to ask Mm. you before we sort of move forward Mm. is when did you realize that you wanted to write for a living Mm. so I knew I wanted to be a journalist so I'd I thought I'd clarify that more than a writer in general. I remember, I don't know if that's when I knew, but I certainly remember this moment really vividly. I must have been 14 or 15 and we had a project at school. It was a week-long project where our class had to produce a newspaper. And I remember being so excited about that project. And the teacher needed an editor and a deputy editor. And I really you know, wanted to do it, but I'm not, you know, if I'm not sort of like the life and soul of a party, I'm not unconfident, but I don't think that I can sort of do everything. And I thought, oh, I'd, I'd really like to do this. And my friends were saying, you should do it. You should do it. Put your hand up. And I said, no, no, I can't. I can't. And so they said, right, hands up for editor. And I didn't put my hand up, even though everyone was telling me to do it. And they said, right, who wants to be? And then the class voted for, for who they wanted to be. But I didn't put my hand up for that. And then for deputy editor, I think it was the friend next to me shoved my hand up for deputy editor. I just put it up there. You've got to do it. And I got voted like to do it. And that made me feel so like so good because I, you know, I wasn't sort of, like I said, the well-known kid in the class or anything like that. But they wanted me to do it. And that made me feel really good. And we did this amazing newspaper and I got so into it. I picked my like reporters, you know, the people who then the sub editors to write headlines and we had so much fun. And I just, I think from that moment on, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I don't know what led to that moment, but I, I do remember that sticking out for, for mm. me. And I wonder also whether, you know, what I said earlier about language and just feeling really I feel very comfortable and confident and like in love with words. You know, I just, you know, when you find that the most perfect word to describe something, I get such satisfaction from that. And I, I just wonder whether that was always there as well, even if I couldn't maybe articulate it when I was younger. Mm. It strikes me that, yeah, having more than one language is probably really encouraging you in that, in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that, you obviously you can translate languages um we know that but sometimes there are words that just work so much better in their mother tongue you know of course you can translate anything you can get the the meaning across but sometimes you can't quite get the feeling across like that that perfect feeling that a word in one language creates for you so i i think i've always liked to be able to read and communicate in different languages because I think you are able to express yourself much more 
clearly and much more accurately if you've got the precise Mm -hmm. word to do so. Yeah, I was going to bring you there. I was thinking there's a lot to be said about self-expression and the, the ability that we may have to do so. So you really did make the difference when you answered that last question by saying you wanted to be a journalist, not a writer. Mm. Mm. And yet here you are, mm. a writer. <laughs> How did yeah. that happen? Oh, that makes me feel, if you'll allow me, like a, a moment of pride because it is, um, I, it's, it's so nice. The writer part, how did that come about? I mean, I, I think you'll probably agree that with my latest book with three things to help heal the planet that it does come I think the writing does come from journalism it does yeah. have that about it the research behind it mm-hmm. the structure of it the fact that it's non-fiction so it does have a lot of parallels to journalism and I think that going from journalist to writer or not from journalist to writer adding writer to journalism has come from I think just wanting to take it further. I've been a journalist for 15 years and I feel that I'm a good journalist and I know how to be a good journalist from everything that comes, from everything that that, that allows you to, to do that. And looking at the writing alone, and journalism is absolutely not just the writing, but if you do take the writing, I feel like I've um, done that well. And so for me, it was a question of, where do I go next? How do I keep writing? How do I keep getting that joy from writing? What else could I do? And I wanted to just explore different forms. And I think nonfiction felt like good next step from journalism. And yeah, just um, also a a place from where I could do more of it in more writing. It's a real... Because I love writing, it's an absolute privilege to be able to do it for a living. So I started asking myself, how can I constantly write? I got to a deputy editor when I was at Draper's Magazine, fashion trade magazine in the UK. So I left there after nine years as deputy editor. And when you get to that kind of level at a magazine, quite rightly, you start to write less because you manage more people and you have to be more strategic. And I enjoyed that very much, um, but it came, I had to sacrifice the writing for it. And then I just wanted to write more and more and more. And so I started to think, well, how can I do that? And why not a book? (laughs) Why not a book? (laughs) I just want to point out, that you had the same title when you did your, was it school or high school newspaper as the title that you had at Draper's, which is deputy editor. My gosh, did you? I never thought of that. But yeah, you're right. Mm. Coincidence? What does that mean, Anne? (laughs) It's quite an arc in any case. It is, isn't it? I never thought of that. (laughs) So, I mean, you had this wonderful career as a journalist. And then, as you mentioned, you joined a brand. You worked for Jigsaw, which not everyone outside of the UK is going to be familiar with. So we could talk about fashion and we could talk about retail because we certainly have that in common, the two of us. And I think we probably have quite a lot of 
people that we know in common as well. I bet, yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of whom is Tamsin, who's one of the contributors to your book. Oh, you know Tamsin as well? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But actually, I don't want to talk about that because I think your book is too important and I'd like us to really concentrate on this. But I was wondering if there's perhaps a bridge. And the question I had for you is, how did writing about fashion and retail prepare you to write a book about the climate crisis and the possibility of individual action? It's a, it's a good question. So I joined Drapers as a reporter, gosh, many years ago, almost 15 years ago. And I had one of my beats was ethical fashion. One of the areas I covered was ethical fashion. At a time when ethical fashion meant very, very little to many, many people. And, you know, I could count the number of contacts I had in one hand when it came to ethical fashion, to the point that I wonder whether it was given to me because I was the newbie. I was this junior reporter who walked in. They had to give it to somebody. Oh, <laughs> and, oh let's give it to her. Yeah. On the other side, I was also given the value sector as an area to cover. And everybody loved the value sector, like all the supermarkets who were bringing out clothing ranges. And it was so at odds with the ethical side. So I wonder whether that has always stayed with me because I interviewed pioneers of the, certainly the UK editor. So I do have that knowledge and I built that knowledge from the ground up. So I think that that could have played a part in this because in writing this book, because when it came to splitting the book into chapters, so it's split into seven chapters and each chapter is you know, a part of our lives that we can do something about. And one of the chapters that was very, very easy for me to decide on was fashion. I mean, it's called wear in the book because every chapter is a verb because the idea is it's for action. So, you know, I want people to act. So every chapter is very active, but it is based on fashion. And that was probably the easiest one to write, the easiest one to get contributors for because I knew them. Although to be fair, one of them is someone I've met very, very recently. But yeah, it was I had three chapters to begin with and fashion was was one of them. And it's very, very natural to me mm. to do that one. Mm, thanks yeah. so much. So I was wondering if you had an origin story for when you became disturbed by the lack of action with regards to the climate crisis? I wish that I did have this sort of, you know, epiphany, this moment that would be so easy for me to say, oh, yes, that was, it was then that it happened. But actually, I think what it was is little things and the cumulative effect of those little things that actually aren't very little at all. But when you think about them, but they were numerous rather than one big moment. I remember things like watching the news one evening and there I was in like my living room, which is pretty comfortable on a nice sofa. And I was watching, seeing images of the Amazon rainforest being burnt. And I'm Brazilian. I grew up in Brazil right. <laughs> and, and I felt very disconnected. I felt, mm. look at me in my comfort and look at, well, 
look at them as in and them gosh what does that even mean I mean you know you've got indigenous people living in the Amazon and then you've got the trickle down effect of what burning those forests mean for everybody and I but it was more like I was sitting there thinking oh my gosh this can't be right that I'm here and that's happening I, I want to do something about that what can I do and I let that linger for a bit and then I remember moving to where I live now in southwest London and my daughter started a nursery and one of the mums there said would I want to join a local campaign group called Mums for Lungs who are trying to raise awareness of air pollution and she was simply she I don't know why she asked me I think she was just asking everybody because she was trying to canvas support and it happened to land with me because I think partly because my daughter had suspected asthma and then I don't know whether it was just a sort of fortuitous moment where this lady said Mm. to me do I want to do this and it's all these little things and then obviously just reading about the problems you know I'm a I'm a guardian reader. So, you know, I will. I, I know I what that read. means. Yeah, I know. I, mean, I, you know some, <laughs> I don't know how people feel about that. But you know, what, what that means from, in terms of this conversation is that I read a lot about environmental problems. Mm. And, but also, and this is, I think, what I was feeling that I was consuming information and I was consuming newspaper articles or watching the news or listening to a podcast. But I wasn't feeling like I could do anything about it. And I was feeling like all these things that I was consuming was telling me about problems, but actually making me feel overwhelmed and anxious by them. And I didn't know where to go for for solutions. I think maybe, you know, when you ask, is there a story, a moment? I do remember this very clearly, which I think I wrote about in the book, actually. I used to, when I worked for Jigsaw, it was about two miles from my house. And I used to either walk or cycle to work because the public transport was ridiculous. Like it would take ages to get there. So I would always walk or or cycle. And I remember this day, it was pouring with rain. And I thought, oh God, I don't want to get wet. I'm just going to get my car. And a journey that would normally take me about 15 minutes on a bike took about 45 minutes in the car. I just sat in traffic for ages, pumping out, you know, just horribly polluted air. And I was sitting there as these school, because it was obviously, you know, on my way to work, as these school children were walking to school, carrying Aye. umbrellas. Honestly, and I, I, I started crying because I thought one of those children will be my daughter. Mm. And I'm sitting here in the dry, um, pumping out my horrible fumes while these children who, they're just, they're just carrying umbrellas. Why didn't I carry an umbrella? Why didn't we all carry umbrellas? And I said to myself, I'm not doing this again because it's two miles away. Mm-hmm. If they can get to school with an umbrella, I, I think I can walk two miles with an umbrella, right? That was a bit of a moment for me. And I, and I haven't done it since. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I think... Probably the first time that we met when we had our first conversation, I already mentioned this to you, or if I didn't, I remember very accurately the first time I really queried the system. It was in my kitchen back home where I grew up and it was a tiny kitchen. And I I remember 
where I was physically. I think I was doing the dishes or clearing something out after lunch. My dad was next to me and I must have just seen the news or something because I was confused as to why we were using chemicals in household products that would be contaminating water when we knew that we shouldn't. So a very naive 17, 18 or 19 year old me said to my dad something like, but why doesn't the government make it illegal and just sets a rule? And I understand that there's an industry living from this, but we can give them a number of years to adapt and then they can figure out their formulations. I had a plan, you see, I wasn't just querying it. And he just went, my dad just went, um, yeah, that's not how this works. <laughs> and I just remember looking outside the window and thinking, but why? Why Why not? Yeah. And the thing is, it must have been, I don't know, 1990, 1992. And it's been 30 years. And if I walk the aisles of my supermarket today, I would gather, this is an estimate, I could go out and count, that 80% of the brands on the shelves and the product being sold is still not good for the environment. And this leaves me wondering, what the hell are we doing? Anyways, as you are, I'm just considering at this late stage in my life, or let's say building up to starting my own family. And I think our conversation is making me wonder, why would I want to bring a child into this world if we can't get it together? It's such a, I gosh, I, I, I know exactly how you feel. I do have a daughter and it was, there were lots of discussions mm. between my husband and I as to, and this was eight years ago. Yeah. I only have one, yeah. <laughs> one child. <laughs> I understand. You're make, like, yes. Make that what you will. Um, yes, and, I understand. Um, I completely know where you're coming from. Mm. And I think that, you know, when, I think my daughter has played a huge part in where I am today with all this stuff. The book is dedicated to her. A lot of the actions I now take or don't take, I think of her. And you know what? If I think too much, I have to stop myself because it gets a bit too much. If I, you know, and I think this is partly the, I don't know if problem is the right word, but certainly a consequence of working in this space is that. The more you know, the more you want to find out more, but you can't unknow stuff. And some days are good days when you think that you've come across a really good solution or you hear about work done by big groups of people, particularly young people, where you think, you know, we could really see some change now. This is excellent. I can, you know, I'm getting feeling really optimistic. But then there are other days when all I can think about is, what is life going to be like for her? You know, what have I done? I have brought her mm-hmm. into this world. I have partly contributed to the world that I've brought her into. And what world is she going to be living in when I'm not here anymore? And sometimes if I think about too much, that too much, I start to well up and I have to yeah. stop. It's and, strange you should say that because I was wondering about, that exact thing this morning because if I mm. have a child by next year right mm. she'll be what 20 he will she will be 24 mm. 25 26 by the time 2050 rolls around yeah. and 
I don't know whether you've ever come across the work of Yancy Strickler, who used to be the ex-co-founder and CEO of Kickstarter. No, I haven't. He's written a wonderful book. I can send you the details called This Could Be Our Future, which I think you'll enjoy. And he'd started this thing called the Bento as a way to go beyond near-term orientation to help us make the right decisions. And one of the things that I appreciate from his method I've recently discovered different ways of explaining it through a book by Dan Pink. It's actually about selling. It's called To Sell as Human. And essentially what academics have found and scientists is that it's very hard for humans to connect to their future selves. It's almost, there's a lack of empathy that is essentially identical to to a stranger. So our incapacity to project or connect to who we will be in the future is one of the reasons why we continuously seem to be making decisions that only serve us in the here and now. And I think that you probably have much stronger empathy for your child than you would even for your future self. So for people who don't have children, I could see why we continuously think about what we need right now rather than thinking about the collective benefits or our own well-being in the future. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And you only have to look at our governments to see how how true that is. You know, decisions are are made based on the short term, based Mm. on the the here and now. And I think another book that deals with that really well and is Jonathan Safran Foer's We Are the Weather, and he, an extract of which is in, my book in three things. And even though his book is an argument against eating animal products, he goes into so much detail about that, not just in terms of what it means, but but he goes into um, a lot of detail about what it takes for us to get there. And this idea of connecting us to the future and how we find it difficult to believe, we find it difficult to see that there could be something really quite catastrophic happening. It just doesn't feel real. He writes very, very eloquently about those feelings and about making, about seeing or not seeing Mm. the future um, and the consequences of that. Mm. It's interesting because one of the things I wanted to ask you was disconnection. I felt like there was a very strong thread since the first pages of the book about opposing values of connection and disconnection. And actually, if I pick up his chapter, I highlighted this and he says, when it comes to food, a major reason that stops us from making fundamental changes is our increasing disconnection to food and nature. So I'd love for you to perhaps tell me what you've learned about this disconnection and why that's a problem that we need to look at i completely agree i think i would yeah say exactly what you've said that disconnection is such a key theme that brings all these essays together and it comes down i think to the fact that we and when i say we by the way i feel like i should qualify this when i talk about we in reference to this book and and, and what it represents more widely is people who have a choice so i have a choice as to where i buy my food from to some extent I can choose what to wear. I can choose who to bank with. 
um, I have, you know, a pretty wide choices in my life. I can make choices. So this is, this book is for anyone who can make a choice. And so this idea of disconnection, I think comes from the fact that we have become so comfortable. Um, we are so used to everything just being, um, you know, we talk about food quite literally. We are handed things on a plate. Um, you know, when you're eating your dinner, whether it's at home or in a restaurant, or if you're buying it from a supermarket, how often do you think about where that, that carrot originated from? How did that carrot get into your mouth? Um, how did it, you know, get into that meal that you're eating? Do you think about where it was grown? You know, do, do, do we think about who grew it? Do we think about how long it took to get to us? Do we think about everything that was used to bring that carrot to us? When we get dressed in the morning, you know, I've, I've got this spotty t-shirt on. Do I know who made it? Do I know the, you know, if I were to break it down, how much, what were the materials used to make it? How much water was used to make it? Um, did people get paid enough for it? Our banks, you know, I mentioned I can choose who I bank with. Our global high street banks get a lot of money. Where do they, what do they do with that? Do we know? Do we know the breakdown? And I think because life is so easy for so many of us, and I go back to the, who I identified as the we, we've stopped thinking. We've just become very, very comfortable. And as a result, we have become disconnected to the value uh, of the things that we consume. We don't really think enough about how those things have landed so neatly in front of us, with, you know, seemingly no obstacles. It's just there. And it takes a lot for that carrot to land on our plate. It takes a lot for me to wear what I have chosen to wear, but I don't think we are thinking about these things enough because we because we've just become so used to not and it's a habit um, and it's yeah I'd like to pick up a couple of different threads from what you just said the first one is the other week I was interviewing a, a young entrepreneur in India Nishanth Chopra he has started an enterprise that is seed to sow so they actually do regenerating farming grow the cotton, work with the local weavers all the way down to the suit product. And they have their own collections, but they now supply other sustainable or responsible brands. And he was reminding me, because uh, he, he was in Milan not long ago, and that sometimes when you go to a fancy restaurant, or it could be just a you know local gastropub, sometimes you have the name of the farm or they tell you it's the potatoes are from XYZ or the whatever. And you're right. This is something that we get to experience or to see when we have choice, when we have means. But most of the time, we have no idea. Also, all of the external negative things that have touched that product. Now, I grew up in the countryside in a tiny, tiny, tiny village at the back end <laughs> of the county of Geneva at the border of France. And you know, below my house was just fields of wheat and other kind of cereals and corn. So I grew up with a dad who was much older and he grew up in the mountains 
And I had stories of they would only eat chicken once a year. And that was for the holidays. Oranges were what you would have on Christmas Eve for dessert. And that would be like a once a year kind of treat. And that certainly obviously marked me because I still remember that. And I understand the value of it. But then this is someone who then grew up and I'm thinking of older generations as the ones least likely to want to make change because for him, I think a meal was meat and two veg, probably because, because he came of this sense of, of lack. And so I was wondering, how would you imagine approaching this conversation with people who have grown up with this sense of this is what is right when it comes to food in particular? Yeah, and that is such a a good question. And I I wish I had a really neat answer to it because, you know, that is a huge part of the problem that we're all different and we all have different beliefs and values. And we don't necessarily like to be told that we're doing something wrong, which is perhaps why that isn't the best way to go into a conversation. And it's perhaps, I don't know, perhaps it's more about um, maybe cooking him the most delicious (laughs) vegetarian meal. And and saying, doesn't this taste great? And really like really (laughs) go out of your way to make the best vegetarian meal you have ever made and just, Blow him away with Sorry, <laughs> I need to tell you that you're making me hungry because it's nearly lunch here. <laughs> and that, you know, then that becomes a bit of a conversation in itself over a, a nice thing. Uh, you know, it, it comes from a positive place rather mm-hmm. than uh, you are so bad. You are doing this wrong. <laughs> you are. So I don't know, you know, we're all different. And that's the that you know what that's why communication is so important that's finding a way to talk to people and it's partly why I've got you know in my book 21 different people 21 very different people Mm -hmm. you know I'm hoping that even if just one resonates it's about be empathetic Mm. be creative (laughs) be positive (laughs) yeah I was going to say you one of the things that most of us forget is we are incredibly adaptable as a species. And so if we can just remind each other that actually it's not hard to change, it's how we relate to change, the stories we tell ourselves that stop us from making the change. And I can't remember the name. There was a fantastic TED talk that dates back from years ago that even went to great lengths to show how human beings have a way to rewrite their own story, to be happy with the twists they've made, even when it was hard. So essentially, we're also built in with an ability to cope and to feel good about the changes we've made. And so I became meat-free, gluten-free and dairy-free, I'd say about six years ago. And apart from the fact that I'm pretty healthy, let's be honest, (laughs) (laughs) I've also developed an immense love of vegetables. And Mm. it's a little bit of a surprise that I love them that much. I mean, who knew (laughs) I could could get so creative with parsnips or whatever. But it's actually possible. And I think we could all do well to remind each other that... We have 
that capacity if only we in, allow ourselves to try something different. Yeah, I completely agree. I guess the difficulty is sometimes that um, we are often driven to change out of necessity and the danger is we only <laughs> we ah. change when the, the problem is already there. And this that is again... Is an, true. A, that is a, true. A, this is a, another thing that Jonathan Safran Furr in his book discusses, mm. this idea of we react when we're forced to and we're forced to when the problem happens. We're very, sure. very bad at preventative measures. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I agree. Mm. But I think that we can all realize that the problem is here. I mean, yes. Mm. Yeah. There's an amazing book called A Beautiful Constraint. I don't remember the name of the authors. And it was showing that the more difficult the boundaries, the more creative we can be. And mm. I think this is something that some of the people that you've interviewed and who've written in the book were talking about. But I also wanted to, yeah, actually the fridge raid frittata was one of the things that I was thinking of when we talk about creativity. But I was very interesting, uh, interested for you to tell me a bit more about this concept of also throwing a better party. I thought that was kind of a winning, yeah. like a winning mm. angle. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably one of my top five favorite lines in the book. And it's, it was said by Tristram Stewart, who is a food waste campaigner or anti-food waste campaigner. And he is also the first contributor. He's the first person I contacted to be part of my book. And so I'll be eternally grateful for him because he helped to kickstart the whole thing. And he embodies that mentality of being very, very positive, but, re but realistic about what is happening, but doing something with, do, but tackling it with energy and with enthusiasm. So his mantra is, if you want to change the world, you have to throw a better party. So if you want people, you know, the meat and two veg guy, and actually he had a great example of that because he said he, um, I can't, can't remember who um, the person was, but he said that, um, Someone came up to him once and said, oh, Tristram, you know, I've really sort of taken on board what you're saying about not eating so much meat. Now, I only eat meat once a day. <laughs> but, you know, this was yeah. the guy who would eat it twice a day, every day. Wow. So, you know, but, but Tristram's whole thing is that you've got to make it fun and you've got to make it feel like you're still living. And that is really important because, you know, we are partly where we are because we have created some incredible things and, and it's human nature to innovate and to grow and to develop. So with Tristram, he organized Feeding the 5,000 quite a few years ago now, maybe 10 years ago, where huge collective effort, but in a nutshell, he threw a party for 5,000 people in Trafalgar Square in London, mm. where everyone got to eat free food. And the food was made from leftovers and it was cooked by incredible chefs, really well-known mm. chefs, and it tasted delicious. And it was a party. This is what we can do. You know, saving the world, in inverted commas, does not have to be boring. It doesn't have to be depressing. There are ways around it. And, you know, he goes on to sort of say, 
I intend to live the good life while fighting the good fight. So he's not going to give up. He's going to carry on, but he's going to find the joy in the day as he does it. And I think that's a, yeah, a brilliant line I've got. I've quoted him outside this book so many times. He should probably trademark that. I think he should. <laughs> yeah, I use it too much, but I do credit him every time. So, you know. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Robert McKee? McKee. Robert McKee. He's a very famous professor and speaker who wrote a seminal book called Story. Mm-hmm. And it's a Bible for people who want to get into the screenwriting business. And I took a seminar with him not long ago. And essentially what he was saying, he said that the core of any story of any story worth telling, there's there should be a move between values from negative to positive, positive to get negative. And there's always a combined set of values. And I think that from what I gather, the one most important thing that came through for me as I read each of these essays, where all of the ones I did read, mm-hmm. was this idea that many things are obscure, hidden. And what really we're lacking is the transparency. And sometimes the transparency is simply starts with a conversation. Is this something that rings true to you? Absolutely. And I think it goes back to um, what you picked up on earlier about this idea of disconnection. I think part of the reason that we are so disconnected is because we don't see um, the, whether it's the, the human effort or the environmental effort that goes into giving us all the wonderful things that we have. We don't see it. Yeah. So, you know, going back to the example of, you know, food, we don't see the people who are growing it for us. We don't see the amount of water being used to grow it for us. We don't see um, when it goes wrong, you know, when there are crop failures. We don't see that. We just see the food that is on our plate. And, and then another example that, that I use is when we wash our hair, we don't see our hair or our clothes, we don't see the tiny microplastics then go down the drain and into our water systems and into our rivers and out into the sea and then and back into us again because our fish are eating it. We're eating the fish. We're seeing evidence now of babies, a fetus like in, in their mother's stomachs that have plastic in them. It's all connected. It's all circular. These things are so transparent, whether literally so in the case of microplastics or whether just, you know, just because we either take the trouble or, or, or don't think about the fact that there are people and resources being used to make the things that we consume. So I think the two are very closely connected, mm. the disconnection and the, the obscured and, and the lack of transparency. I think they're yeah. very, very closely linked. Yeah, there was a passage that in Grow Food, Dismantle the System Mm -hmm. that I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. So many actively engaged human hands participate in the systems of growing, producing, processing, packaging, and delivering our food until it's exchanged for money, but we don't see these hands. These processes are obscured on purpose. They're obscured and it causes the people who, who do that work to be devalued. 
They're obscured and it causes the natural world to be devalued. Learning how to grow food enabled me to see the exploitation behind this curtain in the food system first, but then in everything else. It's very hard for me to concentrate because the kitten was attacking the furry <laughs> thing on the cat tree next to me. And it's the first time she's been interested in it. And I'm, and I'm talking to you and, and she's eating that fiber. And now I'm thinking, what is going in her system? Anyways, <laughs> that's me. a great idea. That's a great paragraph to pick out because I think it sums it up you mm. know, so perfectly. And that was Claire, Claire Atten. And she, um, yeah, she summed that up really really well and it can be applied to pretty much any aspect <laughs> of life whether it's yeah what your kitten is eating <laughs> or any anything else we we just don't know as much as we should yeah she's i'm very grateful she stepped off and now she's behind the computer screen. <laughs> now another line i picked out which i thought was mm. really powerful was this the most sustainable product is the one you already own can you tell me more about that? Yes, we we don't need to. We, we buy a lot, essentially. I think that's what it comes down to. We think we need so much, and we don't just use use what you've got left in your you know in your in your cupboard. If it's a shampoo, use it until you've you finished it. If it's in your fridge, eat everything that's in there first, and it's. And that's on a really sort of like immediate and practical level. But I, but the idea behind that is also to think more long term and to actually think before you buy anything. You know, a lot of the problems that we have and in another essay by J.B. McKinnon, the Canadian author, he talks very much about that and the idea of consumption. Things are relatively cheap for many of us. And I really need to reiterate again who this book is for, for us people who have a choice. And I think we are too quick to replace things. We think that, I think sometimes we lack, we don't see the value in something and we think everything is replaceable. Mm. And that's because actually it sort of is, it's all there, but we need to think about what it takes to replace something we already own with a new thing when we don't need that new thing, because Mm -hmm. a lot has gone into creating that new thing that we don't need. And when you think about it that way, it's crazy. I was looking to buy a swimming costume. So I'm going on holiday and the ones I, the one I currently have doesn't really fit me very well. And as someone who has written a book like this, the idea of buying anything sort of now fills me with horror because I have to make sure I make the right choices. And the thing that struck me the most was that I saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of swimming costumes online. And I wasted about 45 minutes of my life scrolling through my phone, trying to find a swimming costume. And I thought, my God, swimming costumes have been produced and I don't like a single one of them. There is so much (laughs) out there. Yeah. Do you know what I did? I put my phone away because I was getting so angry And I went into my drawer and I got every item of swimwear I own. And it's it's a surprising amount given that I felt I needed to buy a new swimming costume. Uh And I tried them all on again. And you know what? They fit okay. And I am a swimmer. So I do have my actual proper swimming costumes where I do proper swimming Mm. in. And then I have my beach ones. And you know what? Those beach ones are fine. (laughs) They're okay. Yeah. Um, I have not bought a new one. 
<laughs> so I think it's interesting you should mention that because I actually wrote about following an article I saw in, I think it was in Vogue Business, I wrote about in my weekly newsletter hmm. about the difficulty around swimwear. Now, personally, <laughs> swimwear, once it's out of shape and is sagging mm. around the bottom mm. and I have big double D breasts. So <laughs> when it no longer holds, mm. it's not a possibility. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But I realized all of the difficulties of finding something that fitted and also that was ethically yeah. in my wheelhouse. And you are right. There are millions of pieces of swimwear that one of my favorite people who is a very engaged, active person called Eva Geraldine Fontanelli, who has a beautiful website and movement called Gooders. She said, you know, the most sustainable thing is something beautiful that you're going to keep forever. Mm. And so for those of us who are making the choice of buying a new piece of swimwear, just remember, just make sure that this is something that you really, really, really love and will treat really well. So it lasts as long as possible. Because I think that sometimes it's also how we care for the items that we already have that will give them the lasting life that they could have, whether it's in our cupboards or or somewhere else. But I wanted to segue for a second and talk about repairs because I've seen that the rise of repairs is something that is becoming interesting in the in and around luxury fashion and something that I'm not seeing a lot of pickup on in my corner of the world in Switzerland. But I know that there are a number of interesting startups in the UK that are looking at this because conscious consumers don't want to throw stuff away. But sometimes the problem is, how do you get stuff fixed? And I know that this is one of the ways that we can really sort of extend the life of what we own and stop this constant consumer mm-hmm. cycle. Definitely. And, and also from, and people might be surprised about this as, you know, as a fashion journalist for 15 years, I actually hate shopping. Oh God, I, I love nice clothes. I do. I like clothes that fit well and look great, but my God, I hate shopping. Totally. So <laughs> the idea that I've got something in my wardrobe that I know looks good and fits me has a hole in it. If I can get that fixed instead of having to start the process again, I mean, that to me, that's a no brainer because then I don't have to go shopping. So I found a local tailor. And that's the thing as well. Like I think they're around more than you think. So I to give you an example, like, you know, I, I can't fight off every trend. And I really wanted to buy into the mini skirt trend this season. Because I think it's nice in the summer, especially like when you can wear flat shoes. And I thought, oh, but you know, I've just written a book about not buying stuff. So I'm not going to go and buy a mini skirt because I don't oh. need one. It's just, you know, a whim. <laughs> so I was going through my wardrobe and I had this um, A-line suede skirt that I haven't worn for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I put it on and I got like some hairpins and I started sort of pinning it up to see what it might look like if I got it shortened. I thought, this looks nice. So I sent a group, a message to um, a WhatsApp group of local friends. And I said, does anyone know a good tailor? Everyone came back with suggestions. So I took this skirt down the road and he shortened it for me. And now I have a mini skirt that I can wear, which I really like. Let's hope I don't then want to, you know, I want, don't want it to be A-line again because that, <laughs> <laughs> I can't go back. But that was really nice because I then, I felt like I got a new item of clothing without actually having to shop for it. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, it's funny you should say that because there's one shirt dress I own that felt mm. right when I lived in Rome, but now in Geneva, mm-hmm. I don't know, there's something about it that's not quite right. It's too long, it's too, the sleeves are something. And so mm-hmm. I've just got this new dry cleaner and they have a, a great seamstress. And I think I'm mm-hmm. going to take it there so she can change the color and change the sleeves and perhaps take in the length as well. And that's then this what... will become something I'm going to use all the time. But right now, as it is, it's just not getting airtime outside of my Do you know what? You should follow that, that instinct because I am doing the same thing with a shirt dress myself. It's just not the right length. I haven't taken it to have it changed yet, but I will do. And it is a shirt dress and it's something to do with the length. So mm-hmm. we're on the same wavelength here. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was one other example that came to mind for me around furniture. Because I think that one of the pieces that you talk about as well is value that comes through a lot throughout the book and are missing the value of the things that we own because of the way that they've been produced. And we don't understand the price when it's low. And a lot of people don't understand the price when it's high because we've lost this connection with who makes things, how are they made with, how much time does it take? And so for as long as I remember, my dad had this broken armchair in his study and it was his dad's armchair and it was broken and it was kind of nice and it remained broken until I (laughs) moved here. Really? And I just thought (laughs) I've moved around a lot and I've actually taken all my furniture with me from (laughs) London to New York, to New York, to Paris, to Rome, to Geneva. Some of it did not enjoy all of the travel And so they need a bit of TLC. They need a bit of care and repair. After a couple of things were broken, I was actually, I was put in touch by the insurance company and the movers to, let's say, a a specialist that can repair things. And I can't do it all because it would be a lot of money to get everything fixed exactly and put back in the right condition. But I started where I could. And sure, I could have bought a whole bunch of chairs if I'd gone to Ikea instead of repairing this one wooden and leather armchair. It's now in my office. It looks beautiful. And I think that I can invest every year in getting one piece restored um, or fixed up here and there. And, and it feels wonderful. It does, isn't say. it? And, then you, and you- by the way, I did put a bit of time and effort mm-hmm. trying to figure out like, where could I buy another chair how much money would it be to get the same one? And actually I could get a cheap chair, but an equivalent to this would have set me back quite a lot of money. So you feel pride, don't you, in in restoring it as well? And there's a story behind it there. It's nice. Yeah. But on the other hand, for people who say, oh, my couch is, you know, falling apart. The difficulty is I had the, an upholster give me an appraisal and I could buy two sets of sofas for the money that he quoted me. So I had to get clever and find other ways to clean it and to get rid of the, the evidence of yeah. a cat having clawed its way through it. <laughs> Anyways, as you said, when we have constraints, we can get creative. But I think that mm. understanding the value of how things are made is something we can get in contact with when we try to repair them because we see the cost of the repair and that hints at the cost of making it, the actual value of making it in the first place. 
Mm. Now, in one of the essays called We Are the Weather that you mentioned before, there was a sentence that gave us the root, the etymology of the word crisis, which comes from Greek. I love linguistics too. And in Greek, crisis, I'm going to try to give the accent, means decision. And later you quoted one of my favorite writers, Yuval Noah Hariri, who said in one of his books that most human decisions are based on emotional reactions. And I'd go further and saying that we are emotional beings who rationalize our emotional choices. How can we get people to feel more connected? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I am sort of reminded back to when, you know, you gave the example again of them eating meat and, and two veg every day. And, and I said, cook him a brilliant vegetarian um, dinner. It's hard to fabricate an emotional connection. We, you know, we, it's hard to do that. And I think what I have felt is the more you do, the more you feel that the, the more sort of action you take, the bigger, the more you are willing to sort of engage in the, the bigger efforts of what needs to be done. I think that we will, many of us will feel this a lot more when I talk about this, the climate and the ecological crisis. I think we are learning more and more about it and we are making more and more connections between the scale of the problem, how it impacts us and what we can do about it. And I think that every small step someone takes leads to something bigger. So I think that is a way that we are going to feel it more because we are going to learn more about it and, and make those connections. But I think, how do we feel more? How do we get those emotions more? That's um, know that I know the answer to that. I guess that's why I've written this book and why I have spoken to 21 people and not two people. Why I've chosen to, for these 21 very different people to tell very different stories and, you know, and stories that whilst they might be peppered with facts and, and statistics mm. are actually very personal in one way or another or very emotive or bring certain things to life or, or, or transport you somewhere. Um, that's why I wanted to do it that way. Mm. Because if you don't have, in, as in my case, if, if you don't have a, a daughter who has asthma and you're worried that part of the reason for that is how much we drive or if you don't sit in front of the TV and, and feel something when you're watching the country that you used to live in be burnt down, then I'm hoping, I don't know, my, my very, very small contribution is to create a book that tells stories that hopefully will resonate with people and drive mm. them to action. Thank you so much. I remember that the first time we talked you were touched by a story. I wonder if that was from that group, Mums for Lungs, That's about right, yeah. a little mm-hmm. girl whose life was lost. Am I correct? She from Mums for Lungs. The mother lives very locally. She lives down the road from me. Yes, yeah, so her, her daughter, Ella, died eight years ago from... Okay, so to give context mm-hmm. to the story, sure. that her little girl had asthma and suffered severely from it. And Rosamond, her mother, believed that it was linked 
to the fact that they lived off the the South Circular, which is a, a road in southwest London that is that regularly breaches safe levels of, of air pollution. Mm. And Rosamond was convinced that the two were linked. And she fought tirelessly and campaigned for that link to be acknowledged and then acted upon. And she eventually won landmark hearing that said that, yes, air pollution contributed to her daughter's death. They Mm. made the link between the number of times that Ella went to hospital with an asthma attack to peaks in air pollution in uh, coming off that that road and the two and and those two measurements matched up and so ella is the time of speaking the only person in the world to have air pollution Damn. listed on her death certificate and i think that if that doesn't move someone to action then well like yeah. I need to look inside yourself a little bit. <laughs> so the same guy that I mentioned before, Yancy Strickler, he had founded a group called the Bento Society. And so we were working on a weekly basis as little groups and doing exercises to work on ourselves so that we would make better decisions for what he called now me, now us, future me, future us, right? And to have that contact with what he called bento, so beyond near term, so that we would see a better 2050. And I remember there was one exercise that I felt a little bit disconnected to originally, which had to do with with understanding or connecting with our ancestors. And I note the last line of your book in Transform is be a good ancestor, leave the world in a better place than you found it. And strangely, whilst I don't find that I have a strong sense of connection with my own ancestors, asking me to consider how to be a good ancestor is something that I find actually motivating. How would I like people to remember my contribution on this planet? Yeah. Maybe it's egotistic, but suddenly it feels personal. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that you say that it's not necessarily a direct connection to your own ancestors, but a much bigger thing. And I actually think that's way more powerful Mm. and where that saying comes from. So it's the last essay in Transform is by Jennifer Martell, who is the co-founder of Indigenous Peoples Movement. She lives in in an Indigenous tribe between North and South Dakota. And that is what they live by. And it's not necessarily about you know you don't well certainly you don't have to see it as being in you know in bloodlines it's much more about because we're, we're all we're all living on in one place you know it's one planet and we're all inheriting it and passing it on so I actually think the fact that you feel that way is so lovely because that is much more powerful mm. yeah and it's um and I think I say this in the book maybe in my conclusion that if there is one thing that you do from the one thing that you take away from the book, it's that one, because if you can be a good ancestor, then you're pretty much doing everything. Mm, Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay. So I got it then. (laughs) We're going to come to a close because I have some more questions that I like to ask all my guests, but 
I want to ask you two more questions. I'm sure you've got feedback from people who've read your book already and perhaps friends and family. So do you see anything in specific that you think can move people to action? I'm just curious for a reader who's thinking, yeah, well, if I read a book, is that really going to move me to do anything? Right. Okay. So two things. The first one you see, you know, if you have sort of feedback from readers, something that people have been speaking to me about, which they said, I didn't know this, was the essay around beauty care. Well, not beauty, like personal care around shampoo and moisturizer and hair gels, everything like that. How people are just not aware of the things in our everyday products. So lots of people have come to me and said, I didn't know that my conditioner was problematic. We often tend to think about packaging when it comes to stuff like that, but it's actually the ingredients in there. And they are relatively small changes we can make. Although going back to the emotional stuff, we do care about the shampoo that we want, or well, not all of us, but lots of us well, do kind of care about the shampoo and the moisturizer that, that we use. So it does, it can be a bit of a leap to change, but then you are sending a message back to that brand that they need they need to make changes. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. And the other one that I think that there is a sort of a criticism that I completely take on board and, and agree with is that how can I really make a difference with a simple action? That's just, you can't simplify a problem that's so big. Well, if we all changed our banks collectively, we would make one hell of a difference. So unless obviously you already bank with a, an ethical bank, I banked with my bank for about 20 years, not, not thinking, not caring, <laughs> not knowing about what they did with my money. And then I spoke to um, Alistair Roxburgh from Friends of the Earth for the book, and he painted a very vivid picture. So yeah, if, I, if maybe I could sort of send, I mean, I, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it because I think all the essays are important, but money matters. We know that. And if we together could come, if we could come together and and change that, changing who you bank with, that's what I would say. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And so finally, why three things? Because, so (laughs) when I was learning how to become a journalist, like my first job anyway at, at Draper's, I kept being told about the rule of three. So I was a news reporter and I broke stories. And my news editor said, It's not a story until you can get three reliable sources to corroborate. So you need three. And then obviously, as a fashion journalist, I wrote about trends. So unless you see it at least three times, it's not a trend. And then I started thinking about the rule of three. And you think about like in storytelling and you've got the three little pigs, you've got three billy goats gruff. There is something manageable about three. it's doable. You know, I'm not going to, oh, here, here is 1,227 things you can do. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, three is repetitive. We, we use it in writing, you know, when you sort of, you think about sort of making an impact in your writing and you get the staccato like sentences and you do three things and it's, you can't do two because it's not quite enough. You do four and you lose people. <laughs> so you need three. It's, it's more of a sort of writing technique. 
I understand. Thank yeah. you so much for indulging me. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> Before we go to my closing questions, is there anything else you would like to add that we haven't covered? Because there was, I mean, I could have mm. two on the, on the Zoom for the next six yeah. hours easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, I think we have, I think we have covered it all. And I think you've asked some really insightful questions that, you know, really made me sort of think again and, and showed me how actually the work is never done. So I know I've written this book, but it keeps going, you know, like the, the, there's more to learn. There's, and that should be an exciting thing, you know, that's um, perhaps the most important thing that you can do. And it's not something that I would normally say to people is promote the book. Now yes. is the most important part. You've done such a great piece of work. And I say this to the listeners, knowing I've only read half of the book, um, but the first half has left me profoundly moved and challenged. And yes, friends and family, you will all get a copy. But now if I can say anything that I want you to feel from me is go and talk about it. Let's make people read this because we can see in these pages that individual action matters. Every time that we feel disconnected and that we sense that we have no power, we are wrong. We have power. Every small decision, every small choice that we can make can move the needle. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. And that, you know, that is the impact that I wanted the book to have. So it's really, it's, you know, just so lovely to hear you say it. Thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now on to other matters. Okay. What is your favorite word and one that you could tattoo on yourself? As a writer, I do get asked that. What's my favorite word? And I just, I don't have one. I'm loath to sort of make one up just for the sake of answering the question. I can't give you a word, but I can give you a type of word. So I love verbs. I am completely obsessed with them. Um, when I write, I will agonize over a single sentence because I'm trying to find the right verb. And I don't know whether that comes from my background as a journalist. I don't know whether that comes from the writers I admire who are quite economical with, with language. But I just think if you have the right verb, you can do away with a lot of adjectives, with unnecessary mm. words. So is that an annoying answer for you? No answer is annoying. Okay. <laughs> this is just, I'm trying to ask these to mm. understand the breadth of difference and the, the commonalities that we all have with each other. All right. That's why I like to ask the same questions. The oh, end. okay. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and I feel like I'm always surprised by what people choose. And I like to oh, be really? surprised. Okay. Oh, good. So because the podcast, like me, is at the crossroads between business and mindfulness, can you tell me about what mindful rituals, what keeps you grounded, what keeps you balanced and mm. what works for you? Swimming. I swim a lot. I'm going now after this interview. I've booked a slot in the outdoor pool. Uh, running. Weirdly, I'm a terrible runner. But I do it because it's easy. I just can walk out of the door and run. And it's an incredible, I almost I don't like saying it out loud in case I jinx it one day, but it's a really good problem solver if I'm struggling with writing a sentence or an angle to take on, on a piece of work. I go for a run and I don't know, eight times out of 10, I come back with the answer. 
and my family, you know, like just, um, I don't know, really, ultimately that's what matters um, when things get really, really hard, provided that they're here and they're with me and they're safe. That's, that helps. <laughs> what is the sweetest thing that's ever happened to you? Okay, so my now husband, but when we first started going out, he encouraged me to become a journalist. I was still working in PR at the time, knowing I wanted to be a journalist, but not really doing anything about it. He bought me a notebook, a leather-bound notebook. And he, at the, on the very first page, he wrote out an Ernest Hemingway quote. Because you don't remember it word for word. It's, it's a little bit um, chunky, but it's a, a quote that he says, you know, find the emotion find what it was that gave you the emotion and then write it down. And I always think about it. And it's just that simplicity, you know, we're so, I don't know, I think we sort of try to use the language a bit too much, as in we we get a bit um, caught up in long, fancy words. And there was something so lovely and simple. And I'm a writer now, and I wasn't until he gave me that book. Um, Mm. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. For sure. Thank you so much. (laughs) What is a secret superpower that you have? <laughs> oh, and before you answer, I want to tell you, I don't know if you remember, but Freddie, our common friend, Manfred, Freda. Oh, yeah. Her secret superpower is to make a meal out of nothing, which I think is very in line with your book. Yeah, that is good. <laughs> that is, and I can vouch for that as well, I'm sure. Not vouch for it, I don't think she's ever made that for me, but I can see that she could do that. <laughs> My superpower, oh gosh, I can write anywhere. I can write standing up on a packed, loud train and I can write for you. That is a pretty strong superpower. What is a favorite book that you can share with us? One favorite book. I'm going to say Catch-22 because it's the book that I remember thinking about it in terms of how it was written. Um, I think I read it when I was 14 Mm. and it was the first time I considered a book for its writing and what it was doing to me rather than just consuming it. Fantastic. Thank you. Where is somewhere you've visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? Um, I remember when I went back to Brazil, actually, with my husband. We were going out at the time and it was the first time I'd gone back without the rest of my family. And we went, just the two of us, and I hadn't been back for a long time. And it was, I felt, ugh, it might sound a bit, I don't know, like cheesy, but it felt quite Proustian, like the smells and the senses. And I really felt like a connection, a sensual connection to a place, oh. which I don't think I had before. Last but not least, my favorite question, mm-hmm. what brings you happiness? Seeing my daughter sit on my husband's lap, they, they look like a delicious sort of shade of caramel. They're the same coloring. Hitting a really good forehand <laughs> doesn't happen very often, but when I do, it's really good. <laughs> and dipping my head underwater, mm. just being with my family. <laughs> That's it. That sounds wonderful. Thank mm. you, Re. Connected <laughs> <laughs> to hitting that forehand. <laughs> I'll think of you next time I hit one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for the time that you've given me today. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, since the first day that we had a chance to exchange, I felt such a kinship and I am in awe of the book and what you've started with it. It's truly wonderful. And I 
I hope that our conversation today will encourage people to get it, knowing that we don't have to do everything, but that we can get inspired and also let things percolate and see we don't need to know everything and get everything right now. But hopefully there's going to be seeds planted, positive seeds of change. And Thank you so much. I invite everyone to go and buy the book. Where can people find you if they'd like to connect with you, find more about what else you've done and, and the other book that we've never talked about actually, over oh, yeah. the course of this interview? <laughs> well, I have a website, anna-santi.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. You can always email me. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> Wonderful. I will put all of the links in the show notes as well. And once again, thank you so much, Anna. Have a wonderful rest of your day and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really humbled to be asked. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Anna for being my guest on the show today. As always, you can find the relevant links of what we talked about in the show notes. So friends and listeners, thank you again for joining me. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter or Anne Mulitaler on LinkedIn and at underscore out of the clouds on Instagram, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can find all of the episodes of the podcast and more on my website, anvmulitaler.com. And if you don't know how to spell it, that's also in the show notes. To get regular news direct to your inbox, I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you'll join me again next time. Until then, be well, be safe, and take care.